Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will share our knowledge on novel adjunctive sepsis therapies in clinical trials with you. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to your colleague Stephen Opal from the United States to get started. Okay, I will go ahead and start. This is session four, and the, the, the title will be uh, Novel Adjuvant uh, uh, Sepsis Therapies in Clinical Trials. Uh, my name is Steve Opal from the United States. Um, and we have a our, uh, all-star cast of uh, present presenters, and I won't take any up the, their time. But go ahead and introduce our first uh, introduce our first speaker, Kevin Tracy, who's well known to you uh, from his work um, for many years on uh, many exciting new projects that he's discovered. And he will be uh, giving his presentation, his keynote. Um, address uh, without any slides, and so I'll turn it over to Kevin Tracy. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> I was asked to give this overview uh, and decided to do this without slides and rather tell a, a story to, to try to give some perspective to some brilliant talks that you're going to hear in this session. So I first became interested in sepsis in 1985 when I was training as a neurosurgeon. One of my patients, a little girl named Janice, died in my arms from complications of sepsis and septic shock. So in July of 1985, I started working in the laboratory of Stephen Lowry at the New York Hospital. And the major question I decided to address was the role of molecules coming from the immune system and their role in causing septic shock. At the time, the clinical and scientific dogma stated very simply that sepsis was caused by infection and that the collapse of the cardiovascular system in shock was due to the presence of pathogenic toxins from the invading bacteria. But my experience with Janice made me question the plausibility of that explanation because, in her case, this little girl had died in my arms without any infection. She'd gone into acute shock, but we never found any infection, even at autopsy. Steve Lowry and I began collaborating with Tony Cerami and Bruce Boitler at Rockefeller University, which was right next door. They'd been studying whether a molecule today known as TNF, made by macrophages in the immune system, might cause shock. We soon discovered that TNF made by the immune system, not bacteria, was both necessary and sufficient to cause septic shock in a variety of mammals. In 1986, for instance, we showed for the first time that exposure of normal animals to TNF caused shock. A year later, working now in baboons exposed to infusions of live gram-negative bacteria, we showed for the first time that it was possible to prevent acute shock by administration of monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies. So this was the first description of the anti-inflammatory potential for monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies, and it had a tremendous impact on the field of sepsis and inflammation. Most people interested in the pathogenesis of sepsis at that time turned their attention to the role of host molecules in sepsis pathogenesis with the hope in part of finding additional potential therapeutic targets. This virtual explosion of interest in methods and strategies to block specific cytokines spawned a new industry based on treating inflammation with monoclonal antibodies and other biological agents. 
from the early 1990s, the growth in this industry has been stunning. And today we're witness to a $50 billion industry that currently delivers therapy to millions of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriatic arthritis, and other autoimmune and autoinflammatory syndromes based on using monoclonal antibodies against PNF and other cytokines. By narrowly focusing on the molecular basis of shock, it was possible for us to identify a broader role of TNF and inflammation. But the role of TNF in chronic diseases, which can be targeted with biologicals and monoclonal antibodies, is quite different than the acute release of TNF that causes shock. Overproduction of very high levels of TNF and the amounts that are sufficient to cause acute shock is a short-lived phenomenon in patients with shock. By the time shock's even diagnosed, TNF levels in that patient will be long since cleared, and so administration of monoclonal antibodies will have no effect. Acute exposure to toxic levels of TNF also activates other cells to release secondary cascades of pro-inflammatory mediators that can affect coagulation, damage cells, and tissues. And these secondary mediator cascades are not interrupted by blocking just one cytokine, as blocking TNF would be in the case of septic shock. So, so in thinking about this clinical situation and knowing that many patients with severe sepsis do not develop over acute septic shock, in the mid-1990s, my colleagues and I began thinking of alternative explanations. Haicho Wang and I began searching at the Feinstein Institute for other molecular mediators of sepsis syndrome that could account for epithelial barrier failure, organ damage, and death in animals with, without overt signs of shock. This search culminated in identifying a molecule then known as a nuclear housekeeping protein, or HMGB1. We found that HMGB1 levels accumulate for days or weeks after the onset of sepsis, and that high levels of this molecule cause epithelial barrier failure, immune dysfunction, and organ damage that, that can culminate in death. We developed polyclonal and monoclonal antibodies to block HMGB1 and found that it was highly protective in animal models of sepsis, even when we started administering treatment downstream of early cytokine-induced cascades. So today we understand that HMGB1 is the first well-characterized host molecule that is sufficient and necessary to cause clinical signs and symptoms of sepsis without shock. And so by the early 2000s, we had a, a clear insight that specific molecules, cytokines, produced by the immune system, not bacteria, are necessary and sufficient to cause specific clinical syndromes as diverse as acute shock and lethal sepsis. TNF can cause acute shock and, and tissue injury. HMGB1 can cause organ damage and epithelial barrier failure without overt shock. So, as most of us have understood for 30 years or more, and many of us continue to understand, there are two important principles to be considered in studying possible therapies for sepsis. One is that sepsis is a complicated syndrome in which no single factor operates independent of all the other signaling cascades. Uh, second is that sepsis also occurs in many patients with no clinically discernible or identifiable infection. Today's research is particularly important to understanding these two principles based on recent advances in the molecular mechanisms of sterile sepsis. 
our advanced understanding of molecular signaling mechanisms in the immune system actually offers an explanation for findings that used to be viewed as paradoxical. The major advance, arguably, is understanding that sepsis signs and symptoms occur by activation of pattern recognition receptors and that these receptors can be activated by products of pathogens like endotoxin in the case of gram-negative bacterial sepsis, and that these very same receptors can be activated by HMGB1 and other host molecules that are made by mammalian cells, as occurs in the case of sterile sepsis. Specific cytokines signal through specific receptors. In the case of TNF, activation of TNF receptors causes shock and tissue injury. In the case of HMGB1, HMGB1 binds to and signals through a a family of pattern recognition receptors, several of which contribute to epithelial barrier failure and organ dysfunction. One of the most important HMGB1 receptors is TLR4, which is also the cognate receptor for endotoxin. In elegant studies led by Wan Yang and Wolf Anderson, HMGB1 binds MD2, the binding partner to TOL4, and HMGB1 binds with the same affinity that endotoxin binds MD2. The HMG-MD2-TOL4 complex activates the release of TNF and other inflammatory factors that damage membrane integrity and disrupt barrier functions. Now, the potency of activation by HMG is an order of magnitude less than the potency of TOL4 activation by endotoxin, but it's a highly conserved biological mechanism. Why would the host have such a mechanism in which essential cell proteins like HMGV1 cause inflammation and sepsis. Because it's an effective way to activate inflammatory responses that are necessary for tissue repair and to benefit from protective mechanisms during sterile injury, even in the absence of infection. So, for instance, during ischemia or reperfusion injury, important mechanisms that have been worked out by Tim Billiard and his colleague, the activation of HMGV1 through TOL4 leads to signaling that influences outcome. So today we have for the first time in history an understanding of sepsis and their molecular mechanisms by which sterile injury can lead to clinical sepsis. This is certainly something that provides intellectual satisfaction and is probably gratifying to clinicians who have struggled for decades explaining to family members cases of sepsis where they couldn't find an infection and patients with all the signs and symptoms of lethal So, like in my own case of Janice, it's a 30-year story that seems to be pointing us in a good direction. Many of us in this field continue to reveal basic mechanisms knowing it's possible that with each new insight comes a potential opportunity for new experimental therapeutic strategies. And as you'll hear in the remaining part of this section, there are many other potential therapeutic strategies under study. And like any pure experiment, only time will tell if many or any of these targets will be effective for the treatment of sepsis in the future, but I certainly pray for that. Thank you. To me as the moderator, and Kevin, maybe I'll ask, I didn't quite catch something you were saying. So HMGV1 uh, interacts with MD2 and TLR4. Is it at the same site? In other words, is there competition between HMGV1 and LPS? Uh, or is it a different site? So the binding site is being mapped uh, as we speak, um, but what we know is that the binding affinity 
between HMG and MD2, the LPS binding partner and the TOL4 binding partner, that the HMG binding affinity is on the order of nanomoles, mm-hmm. which is very similar to the binding affinity of endotoxin to MD2. We also know that um, when HMG is present in the cellular milieu, that it synergistically enhances uh, TOL4 signaling, depending on the redox status of the HMGV1. So um, the, the, the binding affinity is a highly conserved mechanism for HMGV1 to activate TOL4 in the presence or absence of endotoxin. In the absence of endotoxin, okay. the net activation is uh, weaker than the uh, inflammatory reaction that occurs in response to endotoxin. Okay, thanks very much. So uh, just briefly, is there, there used to be a thought, and maybe it's still true, that HMGV1 interacts with uh, RAGE. Is that no longer thought to be the case? Uh, HMGV1 can bind RAGE, and uh, it, there is um, evidence that in... in uh, that this HMGB1 binding complex can um, be incorporated into the cell and mm-hmm. that the um, um, some cells require the expression of RAGE to incorporate HMGB1, but the um, mechanisms of signal transduction uh, downstream of RAGE are uh, an area that's uh, not well understood. It's, it's okay. plausible that HMGB1 has a CD14-like function that is involved in either stabilizing or carrying HMGB1 to the toll receptors or other receptors that can elicit the actual biological signal. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, a very nice introduction into this uh, rest of this uh, series of presentations. And uh, our next speaker, um, I believe, will be uh, Jean-Louis Vincent. Are you ready? It is my pleasure to discuss with you the role of thrombomodulin in the treatment of severe forms of sepsis. When we speak about the treatment of sepsis, we must consider three different aspects. Infection control, hemodynamic stabilization, and what I call the modulation of the sepsis response. That is where thrombomodulin can potentially find a place. We have learned several things in recent years about the conduct of clinical trials. And one important option is to try to protect the endothelium. We learned that in sepsis, the microcirculation is often altered. Already at time of the development of activated protein C, we understood the interaction between coagulation and inflammation in the development of organ failure. Clearly, there is an association between biomarkers of endothelial injury and hypocoagulability in septic patients. This is a figure illustrating the 
potential interaction between thrombomodulin and activated protein C in the pathophysiology of sepsis. We found that activated protein C may help patients to survive from sepsis. We had difficulties to identify the right patient because there was no biomarker really used in this particular study. We know that a subsequent study, another placebo-controlled study, was totally negative. No improvement in outcome whatsoever, and this second study had quite significant problems. We heard how activated protein C may work, and we have, over the years, understood that the mode of action is more complex than just the interaction between coagulation and inflammation. And when we used the so-called OPS system to evaluate the microcirculation, we found that the administration of activated protein C had a definitive effect on the microcirculation. So we are moving from anticoagulant, anti-inflammatory effects towards endothelial protection and microvascular support. Among the natural anticoagulants, thrombomodulin works in close association with protein C on the coagulation system and they can act together on the microvasculature. But exactly as activated protein C has different mode of actions than simply anticoagulant ones, it has appeared quite clearly that thrombomodulin can interfere with uh, complement pathways. And that is a clearly additional property. Thrombomodulin may even interact with high mobility group B1 HMGB1, which is a potentially nasty cytokine. So the mode of action is quite complex and can involve several processes. This is a recent study which indicates that HMGB1 production may be limited by thrombomodulin. Well, I say it's a recent study, it's a study which is already eight years old, but we have some more recent data indicating new modes of action of thrombomodulin, but always focusing on the microcirculation. There are some nice studies also on the protective role of thrombomodulin on organ function. Soluble thrombomodulin can protect ischemic kidneys in this particular model of aortic clamping in rats. Okay, what about some clinical data? We have now a recombinant form of uh, thrombomodulin, which has been developed by this uh, Japanese uh, company. And a phase three study 
in patients with disseminated intravascular coagulation related to hematologic malignancy or infection indicated that these uh, thrombomodulin could have a greater effect on outcome than uh, simple anticoagulants. And it's not only the coagulopathy which is resolved, but survival can be improved by about 10%. On the basis of these observations, the product has been commercially available in Japan. And with this experience, it's quite interesting to look at the experience in that particular country. And a number of analyses have shown that the, um, that the administration of thrombomodulin could have an anti-inflammatory effect and could actually improve outcomes. A study recently reported showed that if you use a propensity score matching to have two groups of patients with similar characteristics, those treated with thrombomodulin would have a lower hospital all-cause mortality and a longer survival time, but bleeding complications is not more frequent. Interestingly, and like in other studies, the sicker the patient, the greater the benefit. From this propensity score analysis, one can see that the survival advantage was particularly evident in the patients who had the most severe form of disease, i.e. the highest Apache score. This is another study showing the benefit profile of uh, thrombomodulin, and you can see here that the higher the Apache score, the greater the benefit. This is something one can expect, and it was shown and discussed in this special article we published several years ago, indicating that regardless of the curve relating benefit from severity, curve A or, or curve B, in either case, patients who are likely to do well should actually not be enrolled in our clinical trials because they are likely to do well regardless of our interventions. So we need to better characterize the patient populations. Of course, for a new study, we still need prospective randomized controlled trials, as I recently outlined in this editorial in intensive care medicine. I don't think we should have a prospective randomized controlled trial on hemofiltration versus dialysis, or certainly not on two crystalloid solutions. That's ridiculous, as the content of the solutions is different. But we need to go for individualized medicine, if not precision medicine, as we wrote in this editorial in the JAMA. So in the future, we will introduce biomarkers in the uh, inclusion criteria of our sepsis trials. We need to move up 
from poorly characterized patient populations, those who look septic, towards precision medicine, like in cancer, but having some personalized medicine based on biomarkers could already be a substantial achievement. So we are in the era of omics, genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and with this in mind, we thought that for the use of thrombomodeling, we could use coagulopathy, disseminated intravascular coagulation. And that's what we found in this initial phase 2b study, whose results were published several months ago, and we found that in patients having some degree of coagulopathy, the survival was more likely. So with this in mind, we developed the phase 3 study that will enroll 800 patients. And these patients are enrolled when they have an infection and organ dysfunction and coagulopathy. Now in the future, we may even drop the infection part because as shown in this study, perhaps the beneficial effects could be present in the absence of uh, infection as well as in the presence of infection. So the nice thing about it is that in the future, we may have an alarm signal, which would be a low platelet count and a prolonged INR. And then the clinician would be alerted and would look at the possibility of development of organ failure for which the administration of thrombomodulin may perhaps be effective. This is, of course, if the trial is positive. So why I like that trial, which is called the SCARLET study? Well, there is an urgent need for new sepsis drugs. The endothelium is a valuable target, and we would have, a, uh, uh, we would have simple tests that could be used to identify the suitable patients. With this, thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, uh, our next speaker, um, I believe, will be uh, Peter Pickers, who will be talking to us about uh, alkaline So if you don't mind, uh, Peter, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. And uh, good morning, afternoon, and evening for everyone listening. Um, this talk will uh, be about uh, the background and an update on the current status of the STOP API study, which is a, a sepsis trial of alkaline phosphatase in acute kidney injury patients. Uh, and to make clear that there's still an unmet medical need, uh, it's good, I think, to emphasize that at this moment, there's no specific therapy for sepsis-induced AKI. Uh, as we just heard by, uh, by uh, Professor Tracy, uh, indeed, in a sepsis patient, there's an inflammatory cascade, and this is a consequence of sensing bacterial products, for example, uh, endotoxin or LPS. Uh, and this starts a cascade, and that might be, uh, lead to organ dysfunction or even death. 
the interesting thing is that alkaline phosphatase that everybody knows as a, a, a function of the liver as an enzyme that you can measure the function of liver, uh, we know it as a detoxifying enzyme, is able to remove phosphate groups from different compounds. And endotoxin also has two phosphate groups. And if you move phosphate from LPS, it no longer in, uh, incites the inflammatory cascades, but it actually works as an antagonist. Uh, and thereby, possibly, um, less pro-inflammation will be there and uh, people might benefit from that. So alkaline phosphatase was tested uh, as an anti-sepsis drug uh, to start with. Uh, we tested uh, if uh, alkaline phosphatase had direct beneficial effects uh, in renal cells. Uh, and to do that, we took uh, urine from healthy volunteers uh, and we isolated proximal tubal cells from this urine and cultured them. And uh, the, these culture cells were then exposed to alkaline phosphatase uh, and endotoxin, uh, and we measured cytokines uh, as a measure of uh, their innate immune response. And what we found that indeed, if you expose uh, these renal cells, not immune cells, but renal cells to endotoxin, they do mount an inflammatory response with a release of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And if you do that uh, together with alkaline phosphatase, you can inhibit this uh, uh, release of pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines. Uh, so this was a positive study. Uh, in addition to endotoxin, there are different compounds that could also be uh, dephosphorylated. For example, ATP. And as you might know, ATP itself is released from cells during sepsis. Uh, and uh, in the extracellular compartment, ATP is pro-inflammatory and, uh, and is injuring uh, other cells. Uh, but when phosphate is removed from ATP and it is uh, then converted into ADP, AMP, and finally adenosine, adenosine exerts anti-inflammatory uh, uh, properties uh, and is tissue protective. So again, we measured in the supernatant of these experiments the purines, and indeed we found that exposure to endotoxin uh, released ATP from these cells, uh, and uh, if, uh, if these cells were also exposed to alkaline phosphatase, uh, less ATP was produced and more adenosine. So it's not only endotoxin in, from which a phosphate group can be removed, but also from, for example, ATP, an endogenous uh, danger signal, uh, which could uh, explain these anti-inflammatory beneficial effects. Uh, so both mechanisms might be occurring, or we do not know at this moment which one is more important. So uh, the clinical data uh, is from several small phase two studies. And the very first study was conducted in 2007 in 36 patients with sepsis. Uh, and they, these patients were treated with uh, bovine alkaline phosphatase or placebo. Uh, and what we found uh, in these 36 patients, that 16 patients with AKI at baseline tended to have a lesser need for dialysis in the AP-treated group. And in those patients, 20 patients, did not have AKI at baseline, the occurrence following inclusion of the study uh, uh, seemed to be less in those patients treated with alkaline phosphatase. And we also measured uh, markers of tubular injury in the urine of these patients, and we found similar things, renal protective effects of alkaline phosphatase. 
So based on this promising data, a second phase two study prospectively was designed and now focusing on sepsis patients uh, with early AKI. Uh, and again, bovine alkaline phosphatase treatment was given now for two days in her, uh, and uh, treatment was uh, followed up for 28 days. And the uh, combined primary endpoint was endogenous creatinine clearance, uh, renal replacement uh, therapy by incidence and also by duration. Uh, and this combined, uh, uh, this combined endpoint was statistically significant uh, in the group that was uh, treated with alkaline phosphatase. So as you can see in the graph is that all patients had a lower endogenous creatinine clearance, but those patients that were treated with alkaline phosphatase made a more shift recovery and less patients needed dialysis, and in those patients that needed dialysis, uh, only uh, for a shorter period of time it was needed. Uh, so this was a second positive study uh, focusing on the kidneys in sepsis patients. Uh, so based on all this data, uh, the producer, uh, the, the company that produces alkaline phosphatase, AIM Pharma, has decided to, to, uh, to make a recombinant, a human recombinant alkaline phosphatase. Uh, and this recombinant uh, alkaline phosphatase uh, is from two sub-isoforms of the enzyme. One is the placental alkaline phosphatase, and two is the intestinal alkaline phosphatase. And why did they do that? Because the placental alkaline phosphatase has a very long half-life, but it's not really active. While the intestinal alkaline phosphatase has a shorter half-life, but has a very high biological activity. So by combining the catalytic and crown domains of these two enzymes, they combined this and made a recombinant alkaline phosphatase that is very active and at the same time has a very long half-life. Uh, the trial design from the STOP AKI group is as follows. Uh, patients with a diagnosis of uh, sepsis and an early diagnosis of AKI uh, are randomized uh, at the first part of the trial uh, in four groups because dose dependency was also one of the interests. So one placebo group and three different doses. Uh, and again, uh, endogenous creatinine, uh, creatinine clearance was measured for the first seven days uh, and also renal replacement therapy. Uh, so in the, in the meantime, we are now in the second phase of the trial with only one dose versus placebo. Well, why did they choose the, those three doses? Well, from uh, the sensitivity uh, analysis from the previous trials, uh, it was found that uh, an alkaline phosphatase concentration uh, just above 270 units per liter appeared to be mostly uh, uh, associated with beneficial effects on the kidney. So the lower dose was chosen in a way that the trough, rates, uh, trough concentration would be below this threshold, while the uh, middle dose was just above that, and the highest dose was very much above that dose for a long period of time. And as you can see, in the highest dose, the concentrations of alkaline phosphatase that are obtained in these patients is above 10,000 units per liter. So it's extremely high alkaline phosphatase levels that are reached in these patients. So in the second part of the trial, which we are in now, uh, the one dose is chosen uh, by the Data Safety Monitoring Board, uh, and that dose is continued and uh, compared against placebo, uh, as you can see here. So the key inclusion criteria 
are a diagnosis of sepsis, an early diagnosis of AKI, uh, and uh, we use for that creatinine and urine output uh, criteria as is uh, normal in these uh, studies. The key exclusion criteria uh, are here, uh, which are the normal exclusion criteria for these kinds of trials. Uh, in addition, because renal replacement therapy is uh, the key secondary endpoint, patients already on RRT or anticipated to be treated with RRT uh, within the 24 hours anyway uh, are not allowed to be enrolled. The primary endpoint is creatinine clearance, and the key secondary endpoint is requirement for renal replacement therapy, and there are many other secondary endpoints that are listed here. Now, this is an international trial. These are the countries that are participating in this trial, uh, and at this moment, uh, uh, 200 patients are approximately uh, enrolled. Uh, this is the overall data of the patients that are enrolled, and as you can see, most of the patients are enrolled because of their creatinine uh, diagnosis criterion uh, of Aiken stage 1, uh, and some much less patients for the urine criterion. So almost 80% are in stage 1 AKI. Uh, and then the time between the diagnosis of AKI and the first administration of alkaline phosphatase uh, is 21% within 6 hours, 36 within 12, 30% uh, uh, within 18 hours, uh, and another 13% uh, in 24 hours. So uh, we are actually very happy with this because this will allow us to do an other uh, analysis, a post hoc analysis, to see uh, what the importance is of timing uh, and that the patients that are treated very early might be of better, have a better uh, therapeutic effect compared to the other ones. Uh, when 100 patients were uh, included, uh, the Data Safety Monitoring Board uh, advised to continue the trial as is, uh, and at this moment, as I said, uh, 200 patients are approximately included, uh, and we need another 100 patients approximately uh, to complete this trial. So in conclusion, uh, recombinant alkaline phosphatase is a potential new treatment option for uh, sepsis patients with uh, acute kidney injury. Uh, in all the healthy volunteer doses and the previous studies that were done, uh, there were not uh, any safety concerns, so at this moment we are not aware of any side effects, as a matter of fact, so far, uh, and it is anticipated that the STOP-AKI trial will be completed uh, at the uh, halfway next year and that the reporting is expected uh, end of 2017. And with that, I thank you for your kind attention. Thanks very much, uh, Peter, for this very nice review uh, and very interesting data. So I, I appreciate your doing so. I have a couple questions, if I may. So uh, first is, could you elaborate a bit as to uh, the explanation for the renal protective effects as opposed to other tissue beds? It's not immediately obvious to me why it would be uh, prominently affected in the kidney. There's TLR4 expression in renal tubular cells, and, and that may be an explanation. But do you have any other explanation for uh, the renal protection, and specifically as opposed to other uh, tissue beds? 
Yes. Uh, well, the focus on the on the renal level is mainly because of we started out this way and we found these effects that were most pronounced. Uh, but as a matter of fact, uh, also in the previous small phase two trials, uh, we found that also the patients treated with alkaline phosphatase had uh, a lower duration of mechanical ventilation. Uh, so in the, in this trial that we are conducting at this moment. Uh, we are also paying attention to pulmonary conditions uh, and uh, mechanical ventilation conditions to see if we can confirm this effect. And this is of interest because also uh, in the lungs, alkaline phosphatase is of importance because you're constantly inhaling endotoxin and other uh, toxic compounds. So you can imagine that an alkaline phosphatase that is detoxifying those uh, things might be of benefit. Uh, so possibly there are also beneficial effects on other organs. And in the previous trials also, we measured uh, circulating biomarkers of inflammation, so cytokines, CRP, uh, etc. And indeed, mm -hmm. we found those patients that were treated with alkaline phosphatase showed a more swift recovery of their uh, biomarkers. So it's not that it's completely specific for the kidneys. There are several okay. effects that might uh, play a role as well. Okay, so that makes sense. That's good to hear. You might have imagined that uh, the hepatocytes and the coupler cells would be uh, particularly um, benefited by uh, alkaline phosphatase as much of the LPS clearance mechanisms actually occurs in the liver. So have you, can you look or have you looked at the, is there any evidence that uh, you have less evidence of hepatic dysfunction when you're using alkaline phosphatase? Uh, I think that at this moment we do not have human in vivo data that is pointing in that direction. It's also very difficult because liver dysfunction is, is even more difficult uh, to uh, make objective, I think, in sepsis patients uh, than renal dysfunction. Uh, but it, what you say is true, there, and this could be a possibility and is something that would be of interest to find out in the animal or in vitro experiments. But we have not done that at this moment. Okay, thanks very much. So uh, just to the audience, uh, you can submit questions uh, that, that are fed through and we could, we could pass it on to the speaker. So please feel free to do so. Uh, if you have questions. And, and Peter, thanks very much. I think we'll uh, move on to our next uh, presentation. And uh, that presentation will be given by uh, uh, Dr. James uh, uh, Russell from Vancouver. And he will be talking to us about uh, celopressin. So, Jim, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much, Steve. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. Great. Okay. And thank you so much, uh, Steve, as chair. Uh, wonderful session. I've enjoyed uh, Peter's talk. I want to especially thank Conrad Reinhardt and Simon Finfer for their vision, uh, putting this very exciting event together. Uh, I know they're backed up by a team of organizers for all the technical issues. Uh, thanks also to the sponsors for making it uh, possible. But I guess especially thanks to attendees from all around the world for taking the time to learn more about sepsis, uh, really a truly global problem. 
So it's my pleasure to speak to you today about uh, celepressin. Uh, very briefly, a uh, very exciting molecule. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working on vasopressin in septic shock. Uh, and this is an exciting vasopressin derivative um, with two main mechanisms of action that I'll highlight in my presentation. It decreases the need for norepinephrine, and so it decreases the toxic side effects of uh, norepinephrine. But more importantly, perhaps, and exciting, it mitigates the vascular leak injury, which is uh, so common in septic shock, and uh, my thinking has evolved. I think that's a critical part of the pathophysiology of uh, septic shock, uh, organ failure, and death, and it's a major focus in our laboratory in uh, Vancouver. So I'll share with you, before I get right into the slides, uh, a case to uh, kind of set a clinical uh, scenario for everybody. I took care uh, of a 25-year-old, previously healthy male in Vancouver, Canada, who uh, was a stay-at-home dad, very healthy, presented to his family physician on a Wednesday uh, with a sore throat. He was given a prescription for penicillin and, and told it should get better. And by Thursday, he was feeling worse, but still uh, at home taking care of his young child. But Friday, his wife found him uh, much worse, and he was brought to our emergency department in downtown Vancouver. And very briefly, he had uh, profound septic shock. He was treated with fluids uh, and norepinephrine. He uh, got antibiotics rapidly. Uh, he had to be intubated and ventilated in the emergency for ARDS. And it turned out to be a simple uh, community-acquired pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh, I was on the weekend. On the Saturday, he went into uh, renal failure, acute kidney injury, and we had to institute dialysis emergently. And by Sunday, he was having recurrent cardiac arrests and ultimately could not be resuscitated. And I went home. The team and the family, of course, were devastated. And uh, I just felt like, why would this previously healthy young man die? We've got to do a better job. Uh, there's an incredibly high unmet need uh, for better therapies of septic shock. So Let's go into the presentation. Disclosures, the most relevant one, Faring Pharmaceuticals is developing celepressin and septic shock, and I have been a consultant to them in the design, uh, conduct, and analysis of uh, <clears throat> the Phase 2 and the ongoing Phase 2B3 trial. So the outline for my talk is quite simple. I'm going to comment on the use of norepinephrine and vasopressin and septic shock as a prelude, a background to uh, recognizing that excessive doses of norepinephrine, uh, which are sometimes needed for severe septic shock, uh, ironically, the treatment itself can be associated with organ dysfunction and mortality. So it begs the question, is it really the best treatment? And then that leads to our discussion of celepressin and its dual mechanism of action, decreasing norepinephrine requirements, and so mitigating uh, the organ injury that might be due to norepinephrine, and also moderating this permeability injury or this vascular leak uh, even more than does vasopressin. So uh, I've called my treatment plan when I teach the sepsis six-pack uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, uh, airway, breathing, circulation, drugs, evaluate and fix the source of sepsis. 
if we focus on the sea circulation, we give fluids. Uh, various uh, authors uh, recommend one liter or 30 mLs per kilogram or as needed. But the point is many patients don't respond to that, and if they're not fluid responsive, then we add as first choice norepinephrine in increasing continuous infusion doses. And in some centers and instances, uh, vasopressin might be added. So what's wrong with that approach potentially? Well, this slide uh, I've chosen from the literature because it's a simple association study, but it highlights to me and, and colleagues this irony that the vasopressor load, the sum of the doses of all vasopressors, might be contributing to organ dysfunction and mortality of septic shock. Uh, and this comes from Duncer and published in Critical Care. They looked at a control group of a trial. They calculated uh, a mean vasopressor load, and they found that that was associated with, uh, in order of, of the strength of the signal, increased mortality, increased uh, shock, increased metabolic acidosis, so that really aligns nicely with the, the new uh, definitions for septic shock, uh, acute kidney injury, which we've just heard about, and thrombocytopenia. So this is an association study. It doesn't prove cause and effect, but it certainly raises and, and makes us consider the hypothesis that there could be a cause and effect between excessive vasopressor doses and uh, organ dysfunction. So we ran a large multi-center randomized double-blind trial of vasopressin, the Vancouver, sorry, vasopressin and septic shock trial uh, out of Vancouver. And the main results we found were that there was no statistical difference between uh, vasopressin in red uh, versus norepinephrine in green, although nominally there was a slightly better outcome in the vasopressin group. But in about half the patients, uh, this stratum of less severe shock, there appeared to be some signal at 28 days, a p-value of 0.05, and at 90 days, a p-value of 0.03, uh, with better uh, survival in the vasopressin-treated patients. So we also found, and this will be brought back relevant to celopressin in a recent publication in Critical Care Medicine, that the angiopoietin-2 level in the vasopressin-treated patients uh, was associated with differing mortality, and low levels were associated with lower mortality in vasopressin-treated patients. And vasopressin uh, has an effect, celopressin has an effect on angiopoietin, and angiopoietin-2 is a potent mediator of increased vascular leak, increased permeability. So it starts to raise the question of how would celopressin be working, for example. Let's move on in this next slide then to discuss celopressin. What is celopressin? Well, it's a very simple molecule, a cyclic uh, nonapeptide, a highly selective V1A agonist, so different from vasopressin, with two main properties, vasoconstriction, thus sparing norepinephrine, and this vascular leak protection. This is one of the first preclinical studies where uh, at that time it was called FE20215A. This is an uh, animal model, rat model of uh, platelet activator 
factor-induced hypotension. And what's shown here are survival curves in this uh, model of septic shock and showing uh, nice protection from a mortality rate of 80% by the um, FE20215H shown in blue. So in a rat model of septic shock, it improved outcomes. Uh, this is another elegant study from the Reberg group uh, showing that this fluid balance, uh, a marker of vascular leak, uh, compared to control group in a, an ovine severe sepsis model uh, where they had a lot of a fluid accumulation, vasopressin was somewhat protective. Uh, the V1A agonist was profoundly protective, so the animals had less positive fluid balance when treated with a V1A agonist. And interestingly, uh, in that study, they showed that the V1A agonist actually decreased plasma angiopoietin-2 levels. And as I said, angiopoietin-2 is well known to increase vascular permeability. So a recent study published this year in Critical Care Medicine from Jean-Louis Vincent's group in Brussels is a very elegant study uh, in an ovine model of septic shock comparing vasopressin to celepressin, again called 202.158. This slide shows uh, better outcomes with uh, the celepressin group in terms of uh, uh, norepinephrine requirements, but uh, more importantly on this slide, we start to see again a recurring theme of uh, the intervention celepressin having a better effect on lung wet-dry ratio. Uh, the left panel uh, is patients with a later intervention. Uh, the right panel shows, sorry, not patients, but the, uh, the animals with an earlier intervention. If we focus on that right panel, we can see AVP had very little effect in this elegant model, but celepressin had a very profound effect when given early uh, in these animals with uh, septic shock. So permeability is complex. It's been nicely reviewed in the New England Journal of Medicine by Leon Slutsky. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say we don't yet know the mechanism of how celepressin works, and that's an area of active investigation at this time. This is a phase two trial then of celepressin in septic shock. I was honored to be the uh, principal investigator. Uh, and what this was a randomized, double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled trial of celepressin versus placebo in septic shock, uh, multicenter. This panel shows the uh, profoundly beneficial effects uh, dose-dependent of celepressin on the dose of norepinephrine. The left panel is the cumulative dose over 168 hours, and you can see in green the placebo group uh, accumulating more norepinephrine, the 1.25 nanogram per kilogram per minute, uh, a modest effect, and then the 2.5 nanogram per kilogram per minute, quite a profound effect on decreasing norepinephrine doses. The right panel is the same uh, data, but now shown just as the norepinephrine dose uh, at any given time. And I would like to highlight the main point of this slide to show how rapidly, how very, very quickly, uh, norepinephrine doses are decreased with celepressin. And when we think back to this vasopressin, sorry, vasopressor load problem, uh, this may be beneficial by rapidly decreasing norepinephrine dose requirements. Again, these are humans with septic shock uh, blinded. 
The next is exciting. This speaks to that second mechanism of action, the possible protection of vascular leak. Uh, same uh, time point out to 168 hours. This time it's the, uh, the, the fluid overload as a calculated as percent fluid overload in the mLs. And we see several important points. The uh, green shows that the placebo group over this period of time accumulated a positive fluid balance of about 9 liters. Uh, similar uh, in the lower dose, the 1.25 nanogram per kilogram per minute. But uh, quite a different curve in the red with the 2.5 nanogram per kilogram per minute. Uh, there's some statistical significance at some of the time points, but you can see there's some overload. But at the end of the period, uh, there was a positive fluid balance of uh, only 6.5 liters. Again, randomized, double blind. So uh, an exciting uh, uh, result. Uh, the next slide shows this translated into some improvement in uh, markers of days alive and free of ventilation, more days alive and free of ventilation by day seven in the red, uh, higher dose, and more patients out of shock in the red on the right, higher dose, celepressin. So this has led to the launching of uh, phase 2B3 international multicenter randomized placebo-controlled trial of celepressin in septic shock. This is dubbed Sepsis Act. Uh, I've shown at the bottom, if you go to clintrials.gov, uh, you can see a fair number of details about the design. Here I've highlighted three exciting, I think, novel approaches that are being taken in this trial. First, it's more like a pragmatic trial. It uses simple inclusion criteria. Second, it uses adaptive trial design, response adaptive trial design. We don't have time to go into that in detail, but it's, uh, I think, a, a, a very novel and, and very important approach to better trial design in our field. And third, uh, a very important point, the pivotal endpoint, instead of 28-day mortality for this Phase 2B3 trial, is a composite endpoint of vasopressor and ventilator-free days. Uh, so that if there's a favorable effect of celepressin compared to placebo uh, on that outcome, that's the primary endpoint. The next slide is a brief summary. The patients are adults with proven or suspected infection, and septic shock is defined as hypotension requiring vasopressor treatment despite adequate fluid resuscitation. Next slide shows the exclusion criteria for the trial, uh, very similar to previous studies, but I would say a bit simpler. There are fewer exclusion criteria. Uh, in particular, some of these are for uh, time. We want to get patients within the first 12 hours uh, from onset of needing a vasopressor. Uh, we need them with septic shock, and uh, they can't have had previous or ongoing, sorry, acute mesenteric uh, coronary uh, ischemia because of the vasopressor effects of celepressin. Now, the short-term benefits of organ dysfunction improvement, this days alive and free of vasopressor and then later free days, we've done a lot of work looking at this outcome, and we're excited about this publication in Critical Care Medicine in which we uh, had an opportunity to look at the correlation between the acute 28-day days alive and free of organ dysfunction and how that associates with one, five, and 10-year outcomes. Uh, the panel's uh, legends are too small to see, but the differences in these bars show essentially that if you have an, uh, an in intervention that decreases uh, organ dysfunction 
i.e. increases the number of days alive and free of vasopressors or ventilation, it could lead to uh, better one and five year uh, outcomes. And, and so that's exciting. That needs to be proven, you know, in interventional trials, but it raises that question or hypothesis. So in summary, uh, norepinephrine and vasopressin are the mainstays clinically in septic shock today. A high dose or excessive norepinephrine is associated with organ dysfunction mortality. And so we're excited about celepressin as a, a novel V1A agonist that could uh, be effective because it decreases norepinephrine requirements and it moderates the permeability injury more than does vasopressin. So thank you uh, to uh, my team of investigators uh, in Vancouver and in Lund, uh, and uh, of course the investigators around the world in Sepsis Act and the prior phase two trial, uh, and with the sponsor, none of that could have happened without those people. So thank you very much, Steve. I think I'll, I'll finish there and then see if there are any questions. Thank you very much. Uh, Jim, wonderful presentation, very clear and very interesting. Uh, a couple questions. What do we know about the V1A uh, receptors uh, when stimulated? I mean, if, if there's a possibility of down-regulating receptor density during the interaction with ligands, such as, for example, with the uh, adrenergic receptors. Is the V1A receptor uh, constitutionally produced, or does it uh, vary uh, depending on uh, uh, interaction with its ligands? Uh, great question. Um, so the V1A receptor is uh, constitutively um, trans, uh, produced and expressed uh, widely throughout the vascular vasculature. Um, it is modulated by in models, uh, animal models of sepsis, and there are some uh, differences in uh, results according to the animal model, the timing, and the type of model. Uh, some of these studies actually show down regulation of the V1A receptor. Uh, we don't have a clear picture, obviously, in humans how that translates, um, but there could be differences. And I, uh, my own personal hypothesis is that's part of why we see, uh, just like in norepinephrine, I think we're going to see some patients who are very sensitive to uh, celepressin uh, and may respond to the lower doses, but other patients who are more resistant and need higher doses. And one of the reasons, there could be others, of course, but one of the reasons could be uh, changes in V1A receptor density. Uh, now, we don't know the specific ligands that uh, do that. Uh, I don't think uh, I know that, at least, uh, but it's, it's certainly well uh, recognize that uh, endotoxin, for example, can induce this downregulation of the V1A receptor. Very interesting. The other question is going to have you mentioned uh, angiopoietin 2. Uh, angiopoietin 1, particularly with its partner, TIE 2, are uh, protective endothelial barrier protectors. I'm wondering if you had a chance to look at either angiopoietin 1 or TIE 2 in addition to your ANG2 uh, studies? Yeah, great question. Uh, you're right. The, it's actually the balance between the ANG1, which is protective, the ANG2, which is uh, injurious. Um, so in the 
publication, we measured uh, angioportin 1 and angioportin 2 in the VAST trial and correlated those levels with outcomes. It turns out the ANG1 did not uh, correlate with outcomes. Uh, both the ratio of ANG2 over ANG1 and the ANG2 alone correlated very well with organ dysfunction and outcomes. And so you can either look at the uh, the ratio of ANG2 over ANG1, the injurious over the protective, or it turns out because the signal is essentially all in the ANG2, uh, you could clinically uh, perhaps only need to measure the ANG2 because uh, the ANG2 is really where all the signal is. Very interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, if I may, that uh, yeah, you know, we're not the first to show this. There are a number of other well-published studies in severe sepsis, septic shock, that angiopotent two levels go up. So um, that's not novel. But I think within a well-defined cohort, the degree of increase and then finding this th- a specific threshold level, uh, you know, my vision is this could end up being, uh, it could end up being, uh, for example, a biomarker of response to uh, drugs like vasopressin and salopressin if it helps us define even better the, the good responders to uh, a V1A agonist. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Professor uh, Russell, a great presentation. We're going to Thank move you. on to our uh, next uh, presenter, who is none other than uh, Richard Hotchkiss from WashU in St. Louis in the United States, and he will be talking to us about anti-PD uh, ligand one um, strategies in sepsis. So, Richard, you're on. Hi, hi, Dr. Opal. Uh, it's a real honor to be here, uh, and looking forward to. Uh, giving this presentation. Uh, I'll get started right now. Uh, so um, when you look at sepsis and you consider uh, all the trials that have been done in the past 20 years or so, uh, they've basically been directed at blocking inflammation. Here, this first slide shows you that there have been well over uh, 60 trials of anti-inflammatory uh, drugs uh, that have been attempted and they've been uniformly uh, unsuccessful. This has led to the concept of sepsis as, you know, the graveyard of, you know, pharmaceutical trials. Uh, so a lot of these were directed at blocking uh, either endotoxin or the cytokines. So what we've learned, which we hope to show you in the next few slides, is that there's a new paradigm uh, that's evolved in that, yes, there is inflammation in sepsis, no doubt about it, uh, but that as the sepsis progresses, you evolve into more um, immunosuppressive state uh, in which the patients can fail to clear their primary infection or develop these new lethal secondary infections. So the next slide here shows you that um, with this evolving concept, uh, you can see as there's a pro-inflammatory response on this uh, vertical axis, you'll see that dotted line, the patients do have this initial pro-inflammatory response. At the same time, uh, they develop an anti-inflammatory response, as the downward dashed line indicates. Now, when you look at the net sum initially in the first day to two, that uh, bold, solid black line, you see there's a more pro-inflammatory response. But after uh, 
24 hours, 72 hours, the patients evolved. Uh, you'll see with the arrow pointing to the severe sepsis-associated immunosuppression. And we believe that it is during this phase that drugs which boost immunity can improve outcome. So the next slide here shows uh, really what we like to think of. Sepsis is a race to the death between the pathogens and the host immune cells. Here you see, for example, bacterial lives and their neutrophils, lymphocytes, and monocytes. The key point to realize is that these uh, microorganisms have mechanisms of incapacitating the host immune system. And the issue is how do we re-engage the host immune system? And we're going to talk about one of these. So uh, we might be able to get a glimpse about how to re-engage the host immune system based upon what's going on in the field of oncology. This slide here uh, shows in the science, in the, in the journal Science, the breakthrough of the year was cancer immunotherapy, and it shows T cells on the attack. So why is this uh, important in patients uh, with sepsis? So this is a um, the title of an article, uh, it's a little perspective article in the New England Journal, in which it's, it indicates that cancer and sepsis share common immunologic profiles. It's very uh, uh, paradoxical, but um, also very logical when you look at what are the mechanisms driving the immune suppression in these states, and why does activating T cells uh, work in cancer and potentially in sepsis? So in both cancer, which is the left hand of those two panels, and an infection on the right hand panel, there's chronic inflammation, and persistent antigenic exposure, which are present both. And this drives what's felt to be due to T cell exhaustion, where the T cells don't work well, okay? So the significance is that immunotherapy that works in oncology may also work in sepsis. As the next slide shows, and this will be the only immunologic slide, if you look on the left hand of the, there, there's an antigen-presenting cell, APC, and then the HLA-DR complex, there's the antigen which is presented to the T-cell receptor, PCR. So when the T-cell receptor recognizes that antigen and there's a co-stimulatory stimulus by CD28, there's proliferation of the T-cell, it differentiates into different types of T-cells, and it makes cytokines. Its effector function is activated. Well, there has to be a way for the, the cell to turn off this activation or else we'd have large numbers of activated T cells which could cause severe inflammation and autoimmunity. And the way that the T cell has a break on it is through this PD-1, PD-L1 mediated suppression. If you look at then the right-hand panel, there's a PD-L1, the PD-YDN1, which interacts with a PD-1 on the T cell. This puts a break on T cell function. It causes cell cycle arrest. It can cause the T cell to undergo apoptosis, which is very prominent in sepsis, and can terminate the T cell response. So, is this involved? Is this pathway involved in sepsis? And yes, it, it does look to be. In, in this slide here, you'll see that 
there's a mouse model in this upper uh, survival curve here, the percent survival, you can see that uh, mice that were treated with either anti-PD-1 antibody or anti-PDL1 antibody compared to an isotype control antibody had about a 60% survival compared to mice that got the isotype control antibody, which is less than 40%. This has been verified in I believe it's three or four independent groups now that have shown this exact same uh, result. Now, and when you come to patients with sepsis, it's been shown that there's an increase in the PD-1 and PDL expression on monocytes and T cells that's associated with this upregulation with a higher incidence of infections and mortality. Furthermore, autopsy studies done from patients that died of sepsis showed increased expression of PD-1 and PDL1 in immune effector cells in spleens and mom. And if you take the T cells from patients with sepsis and you incubate them ex vivo with anti-PD-1 or PDL1, you can restore their function to make interferon gamma a critical cytokine in sepsis, and you can block lymphocyte death. The furthermore, in this bottom slide here, you can see that there's a SNP. There, there's an alteration in the gene, and this was over 220 patients, I think, where they looked at the genotype for uh, patients with sepsis, and they showed that patients with sepsis that had an alteration in, in one of the single nucleotides, uh, they had a SNP, have a much higher survival rate, uh, close to uh, 80 to 90 percent, compared to those patients that had the normal expression, the normal gene here. So, in our next slide here, we show that uh, anti-PDL1 uh, trial conducted by Bristol Myers Squibb, published in the New England Journal, in which 280 cancer patients were treated. These were patients with a variety of different types of uh, malignancies. They had a, a, a reasonably good response rate, similar to many of the other uh, agents. This is one of the hottest areas in cancer now, and uh, which I'm sure you're aware of if you're following the literature of the field. And these patients had a number of them durable tumor response. The important point is that 280 patients got this. They got multiple doses. Many of them were treated for months, and the overall safety profile was really very good, generally manageable and consistent with that observed in other clinical trials with antibodies that block this pathway. So here we showed uh, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, is conducting a trial, a multi-center trial of anti-PDL1. This is on the clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, it's a phase 1B to a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial uh, looking at anti-PDL1 in patients with uh, severe sepsis. This shows the design of the study um, and where the trial actually is right now. The first part one is a single ascending dose design uh, with uh, 25 patients. There's five patients in each cohort where they are getting 10 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 100 milligrams, 300 milligrams, and 900 milligrams. Currently, we finished the 100 milligram dose, and uh, uh, the, the, probe, the safety, the tolerability, uh, and the, we're, we're, we're very uh, um, 
they were very appropriate and safe. There were no uh, significant uh, serious adverse effects. And we've moved on uh, starting at yesterday to enroll for the 100 milli for the 300 milligram and then the 900 milligram. After that, there will be part two, as you can see there. It's a uh, single-dose parallel design in which there will be uh, 200 patients uh, getting treated with 100, 300, or 900 milligrams or placebo. And that will be looking at 90-day uh, all-cause all -cause mortality. So the risk-benefit ratio, oh, I should also add that, uh, talking about this, as for any of these drugs, um, there are potential for autoimmune side effects because it does boost immunity. Therefore, patients which are a contraindication is patients who have autoimmune disease and patients with organ transplants. Those patients are, are not eligible for inclusion into the study. So, to talk about the risk-benefit ratio for the use of PD-1, PD-L1 blocking in sepsis. So, it's a short duration here uh, in sepsis. Um, the uh, anti-PDL1 has a half-life of uh, two weeks in the oncology patients. Uh, the patients with sepsis are more immune suppressed than most cancer patients, not all, but most. Uh, studies, when you look at viral reactivation, loss of their delay type hypersensitivity response to recall ant antigens, Furthermore, there have been a lot of other trials with really potent enhancing immune agents, including GCSF, GMCSF, and interferon gamma, and these have been well tolerated in patients with sepsis, giving us uh, assurance or some pretty good confidence that, that it's safe to move forward with anti-PDL1. Also, I think it's very important to keep in mind that severe sepsis, septic shock, carries a high 90-day mortality of up to 40%, and therefore not treating these patients also carries a high risk. So the key summary points, uh, PD-1 and PD-L1 are upregulated in septic patients. Blocking PD-1, PD-L1 pathway reverses critical pathophysiologic events in sepsis, restores T-cell function. In the oncology trials of anti-PD-L1, uh, it induced tumor regression and prolonged disease stabilization in patients with a variety of advanced cancers. Overall, the safety profile was generally manageable and consistent with that reserved with other observed other clinical trials, and a, a multi-center trial of anti-PDL1 is currently underway in, in many major, in a number of major academics. And finally, in conclusion, sepsis evolves into an immunosuppressive condition with a corresponding high instance of opportunistic type infections. The immunologic defects in sepsis are similar to those occurring in cancer, suggesting a common mechanistic response. Immunoadjuvant therapy offers hope in cancer and possibly an infectious disease. We believe it's an incredibly exciting area, and, and uh, data from the mouse model supports this. Taking together, uh, we think that interventions that have potential to improve post-immunity should be studied in sepsis. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, there are a variety of great collaborations, a multi-center trial, um, and also uh, the, the close collaboration with uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, the investigators there, Liz uh, uh, Colston and uh, Dennis Priscilla. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Great presentation. We have a couple questions uh, for you, uh, one of which was, uh, are there patients that you see 
who you never detect a hyperinflammatory state, and they just start off at the get-go in an immune-suppressed uh, state? Uh, yes, I. thanks for that question. Yeah, I think it's a very important question, and yes, I'm convinced that we do see that. Patients who are elderly, uh, in patients, the patients I've noticed on most particular are patients that are chronic renal dialysis patients. Uh, a lot of times, the only way you'll know that they have an infection is they have an altered mental status, they become hypothermic, uh, and become hypotensive. Patients get transferred into our ICU. These patients, I believe, you know, when when you, when you look at them, that, that they are just, you know, immune suppressed at baseline. Um, I think they're also the uh, patients that are alcoholics and very malnourished, those patients. I think a tip-off to those patients, I think, I think the whole future, a lot of the future of using immunotherapy and sepsis will be doing the immune phenotyping to know where they are. And I think that there will be patients, when you do this immune phenotyping, you will see their immune suppressed at baseline, and you can safely begin, you know, the, the uh, immunoadjuvant therapy at that time. I could go on, but I think that hopefully address the hypothermia. I think is is a, one that's a pretty good uh, tip off for that. Great, thank you. Uh, we have another question from the audience. Um, uh, do, do you worry that these types of drugs that uh, alter immune surveillance mechanisms for cancer and that could it be a late uh, complication of such treatment? Uh, no, I, I. So, what these drugs that we're using, they're being used as therapies against cancer, and and and. So, I don't think they would increase the risk of cancer. Uh, I don't think they'll, you know, have that particular, you know, adverse effect. I think the risk is autoimmunity uh, in the patients, and I think that uh, uh, with the single dose of drug or, you know, for the short period of time I, that they're going to be given as opposed to patients with uh, uh, cancer where they're given much longer, uh, that it's a, it's a relatively modest concern for autoimmunity. And as I emphasized, these patients with sepsis that are severely septic, the ones that we're targeting to, you know, where they're on, you know, uh, uh, vasopressors and ventilators, these patients are highly immune suppressed. And I don't think that they're going to be having really severe uh, autoimmune, autoimmune effects with these drugs. Right. Okay, uh, one other question, Richard. The, uh, can I assume that uh, measuring PD-1 or PD-1 or PD ligand 1, it, since they're integral cell membrane uh, proteins, you're using fax analysis. Is it possible? Do, do any of these proteins become solubilized and can you measure them in the plasma, for example, to say, well, what, maybe we want to give an anti PD1 antibody? I'd like to know what there's lots of PD1 being expressed. Is it possible to do that by looking at the plasma or do you need to do a fax analysis? Yeah, so um, there are some, um, there's a, a very good assay by R&D uh, for soluble PD-L1. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I believe that there are some oncology, there are papers in the literature in oncology, they're just, and this is relatively recent, I think, that they've gotten very good assays uh, for this, um, this, but there are some papers in oncology that do relate to that. I think that that may be, you know, one uh, mechanism, uh, one decision, uh, if there's a high degree, it is, can be shed, the pd one can be shed. I think uh, looking at expression of uh, uh, PD-L1 uh, and possibly as well as PD-1 may offer some guides in selection of patients, that is by flow cytometry. Obviously, right. flow would be more cumbersome, but uh, they're definitely, uh, it's, they're, they're becoming easier to use and, and I think will be more widely available. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much, uh, Richard. Great presentation. We'll uh, move on to our uh, next presenter, Niels Riedemann from Germany, who will be talking to us about the challenges in developing novel diagnostics and therapeutics in sepsis. Professor Riedemann. Yes, thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, can, can you hear me well? This yes, fine. Thank you. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Well, first of all, thank you for, for hosting this as chairman, and of course, thank you to the organizers. I think this is a great new format, and I see that a lot of people are following, and that's, uh, that's uh, really encouraging. So I have the pleasure today to talk about anti-C5A therapy. Um, and uh, before I start my talk, I would like to uh, talk about conflict of interest. So until recently, until last year, I had the pleasure of uh, being a vice director leading the intensive care unit at the Jena University Hospital, which is the intensive care unit in the department of Konrad Reinhardt, now uh, from his successor, uh, Michael Bauer. So I've been heavily involved in sepsis um, uh, on the clinician side uh, as an intensivist, but I've also researched that target that I've been uh, involved with now for 16 years, um, C5A, when I first came to the laboratories of Peter Ward, where I met Renfeng Gu, an excellent researcher, a co-founder of the company that I'm heading today. So um, simultaneously to leading this ICU, I've also been uh, founder and CEO of Inflarex. So this is uh, where Renfeng and I started a company to bring this anti-C5A therapy to clinical applications. So I'm just about as conflicted as you can be and I think it's important that everybody knows this. <laughs> and um, I think some, some 12 years ago, um, I, I was listening to the first talks of clinicians talking about sepsis and started publishing about why trials failed. And um, some of the speakers, like Kevin Tracy, uh, giving an excellent uh, overview. And I think I even met Kevin back in the Ward Lab when he visited Peter Ward in 2002. And I was fascinated by so much enthusiasm uh, into this field, but um, so little success. And I think even today, um, we're, we're not really uh, that much further when you look at it from a patient's perspective. So um, I have the pleasure today to talk to you about some data and some perspectives uh, from what we have done and where we are. And I would uh, jump right at it. So I just can't spare that. Uh, I have to talk a little bit about complement when talking about C5A. I think in the meantime, complement is a lot more known to, to people because there's one very famous drug from Alexion Pharmaceuticals out there which blocks C5, and it helps, meanwhile, a lot of patients. Um, and uh, so people now believe that complement in the 
that inhibition, especially in terminal complement uh, pathways, can be beneficial. Now, complement is really one of the most crucial innate immune response weapons or innate immune response mechanisms that we all have. Uh, and a complement activation really occurs upon numerous stimuli. It doesn't have to be infections. It can be any type of tissue damage, trauma, burn injury, uh, any, anything that happens to us that will kind of cause an injury to our cellular integrity is capable of activating complement. And complement activation occurs very rapidly, takes minutes, um, but it's also occurring over many, many days and maybe even months in many, some other diseases, as long as this uh, underlying insult to the integrity um, is um, still existing. Now, uh, I think an important part is that, that complement can be activated, but what a lot of people don't realize, when terminal complement activation occurs, that means C5, the central last molecule, is cleaved, then we have C5A, which is the target that I'm talking about today, very, very strong, actually the strongest inflammatory booster that I know of, practically involved in any acute inflammatory response that we've researched. And on the other hand, you have C5B, the much bigger part, which then assembles with other complement factors and in the end can form the so-called membrane attack complex and that can cause harm to cell surfaces. The idea is that invading microorganisms can be lysed and can be killed by that. So we felt it's very important if we bring such drug into the sepsis field, we would need to definitely leave that intact. So our drug that we have now under investigation can do that. It's very selective. But before I talk about that, just a few steps back, a little bit thinking about what is complement really doing. So we're in a fortunate position that not only one group, like the Ward Group, has researched this. This has been researched by numerous groups in literally many different animal models and hundreds of, of publications. And basically every group that has researched C5A and C5A receptor inhibition has found the, the same response. So when we look at the trigger infection, complement activation occurs rapidly, C5A will be produced. And C5A, as I mentioned, has these boosting functions. So what does C5A do? It attracts neutrophils, white blood cells, and activates them extremely strongly. So they produce oxygen radicals and release aggressive enzymes. Those two mechanisms are very tissue damaging. They are, C5A is also heavily involved in practically the entire cytokine network generation, boosting IL-6, uh, TNF-alpha, um, IL-17, many pro-inflammatory mediators. Uh, so if you take C5A out of the picture, you will get a dramatic reduction of numerous of cytokines and you will have a direct influence on cell damaging mechanisms. And this is just a snapshot of the ones that have been found. And the clinical consequences are cardiovascular shock, cellular damage, the typical edema formation, organ failure. So the idea is when you intervene and you intercept C5A early, then you may prevent this tissue and organ damage and you may help. And this is very well supported by, by basic research in animal models. Now, I just want to give you one idea about this drug that we're researching now, IFX1, that has been generated uh, uh, internally in, in Interrex. And so this is a, a work that we conducted with a group of uh, a very well-known uh, professor in China, Professor Zhou, and here uh, and his, his colleague son at our 
they did this work to, with us together in San Amorgos uh, uh, monkeys. So uh, these were, I'm, so, I'm sorry, these were not San Amorgos, but also non-human primate monkeys. These were African green monkeys. Um, and what we found when we infected these monkeys with the new avian flu virus, H7 and 9, which is not quite as aggressive as the former global threat avian flu virus, H5N1 or other viruses, but it causes a significant cellular damage in the lung. And we were able to treat monkeys uh, right after inoculation with, that, with relatively high amounts of that virus that are necessary to cause, a, cause an infection. And we dramatically reduced the tissue damage, but interestingly, we also dramatically reduced, which is difficult to see, but, uh, the, the viral load in these monkeys. And so this is, of course, a pneumonia model, but it shows you the potency when you are early treating um, these, these uh, in, in such a complex model like a viral, uh, acute viral lung injury model. Now, um, I want to talk about the first phase 2A trial that we just conducted and finished this year um, with this drug in septic patients. And the, the, the science trial studying complement inhibition in early newly developing sepsis. The primary objective of the trial was to assess pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the drug because it's never been put into patients before. And we want to characterize safety and tolerability, of course. So we, we chose different dose regimens. Um, secondary objective were, of course, to, to preliminarily uh, assess the efficacy of IFX1 on clinical surrogate endpoints um, and to also generate data of P, for PKPD modeling and to evaluate the differences in subgroups of patients with pulmonary or abdominal infections. Now, um, before I go into detail, I would like to come up with a slide that you have seen this way or similar many, many times maybe before, which has been generated originally by um, um, Professor Hotchkiss and his team. And um, I'm very honored and happy to speak right after him because I hope he's still listening. <laughs> but um, when I saw that back then, I, I thought, well, this is, this is really what we've been talking in the lab for, for a while about, that you may be following an immune response. And uh, of course, meanwhile, we know the immune response can really not right now be really measured with diagnostic means. But from animal models, we know quite well that this instant, immediate pro-inflammatory response, um, yes, anti-inflammatory response is started as well, but it is in the foreground in the early stage. And then you may enter an immunosuppressant um, phase, and the, the red line you see here shows you uh, maybe an, an immune-competent uh, younger patient that could look like a green line when you go into a more compromised older patient, and if you had immune-suppressed patients, you would probably not even see a pro-inflammatory response. But when you look at all the trials that have been conducted in the sepsis field, the typical inclusion time points were about, I would say, 24 to even up to 72 hours after screening. So the right gray bar is really where patients have been, the majority of patients have been recruited into clinical trials. So what we wanted to do is shift that, bring that gray bar to the left, and include only patients in the very early stage. Now, before I show you just, just a few data here, I would like to at least share with you uh, whether or not that concept makes any sense. And I think the next slide, um, I'm particularly very, very happy 
to be able to present that to you. So this is just the control group. It's just a few patients. It's the control group. So we're just looking at interleukin-6, interleukin-8, IL-10, and TNF-alpha uh, measurements. And you see this is just the values we measured in our patients right after we started enrolling the patient. And the patient was enrolled three and a half hours after screening, which we feel is a record in the field. And we set out to do that just so we are early enough. And when you just see the gray bars again, where patients have been typically recruited with anti-inflammatory drugs, where sometimes 80% uh, of the uh, target has disappeared already, um, then you wonder if that concept that we have uh, that I just uh, laid out to you may make sense and what if you should have not tried anti-inflammatory drugs really earlier. And so this was the fundamental idea we had. And now I would like to um, show you just briefly, we had three dose regimens, uh, two times two milligram per kilogram, two times four milligram, and the high dose was also four milligram, but given three, three times at zero, 24, and 72 hours. So we had the corresponding placebo group. The ratio for enrollment for placebo was two to one, and uh, the study drug was an IV uh, infusion over 60 minutes. So we screened 76 really patients, four were screened failure, 72 and finally randomized. And you see those four arms, placebo, low dose, medium, and high dose. And you see that, of course, these are very low numbers. It's a phase 2A trial. This is not designed or powered to show clinically meaningful differences uh, in clinical outcome parameters. Um, but the main inclusion criteria were, of course, adults, and the patient had to have either an abdominal or a pulmonary infection, and they had to have at least one organ dysfunction due to sepsis. And this organ dysfunction could not be older than three hours if it was a cardiovascular dysfunction or a maximum of 12 hours if it was any other organ dysfunction. And I mentioned already we had to administer the drug within three and a half hours. So the main exclusion criteria were um, any, any other septic insults other than abdominal or pulmonary source, um, uh, overweight, uh, that had to do with the uh, PK idea and the pharmacokinetic uh, data that we wanted to generate, and uh, lutricytopenia. Um, so the next slide shows you some baseline characteristics, and there are certainly more to consider, but I would like to point out, unfortunately, that can be the case in small trials. Clearly, the uh, least sick patients were the placebo group. So um, you see that uh, they had a lactate uh, level in median of 1.9, um, and uh, the age was 63 years. Um, and when you compare that to the high-dose group, where the age was just about almost uh, 10 years or a good 10 years more in median older, and the lactate levels being almost four in median, four millimole per liters, uh, and the high-dose group having the, 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 um, the, the highest number in failing organs at inclusion, then you see there is not, not really an equal distribution, but that's due to the low number of patients, and that can happen. But that should be probably considered when looking at um, the slides. Now, this is just... Uh, an important slide for us, so this is C5A measurement. It took us, I would say, five years to have a validated C5A ELISA, very tricky. And what you see here um, that uh, is the, the, 
the very significant suppression of C5A levels down to the detection limit of that ELISA. And um, you see the three dose groups, the gray one being, um, being the low dose group and the two others, the medium and high dose group. So we were able, as we uh, set out to do, so uh, to really suppress C5A levels for 24 hours, so one day up to five or eight days. And um, this is uh, maybe not be, uh, much of an astonishing slide, but actually I think this is the first time um, to be reported in history in patients that C5A can be suppressed with the drug. Um, and so we were happy to see that. Now, um, what I would like to share with you is um, just two slides on efficacy. These data are not published yet, and I um, have to ask for your patience. We republish this together with the PI, Michael Bauer, and we will have a study group, um, a publication committee come together, and so it's not published yet, but it will be. So here you see percent drop from baseline in interleukin-8, and you see the dotted line is the, um, the placebo group um, um, and the low-dose group, which we felt was not able to suppress significant enough C5A levels, but the medium and high dose are here over, uh, put together because it's the same dose until 72 hours, and you see that we had quite a substantial um, drop when you compare that to the non-sufficient dose or the placebo group. Um, now, on the, um, on, the um, on a clinical endpoint, one thing that clearly stuck out was uh, the ICU-free days and the initial stay on ICU, and I will share with you here the ICU-free days. So these are the days that the patient did not have to be in an ICU, um, counted over uh, inclusion of the patient into the trial until day 28. And you see on the right-hand side the median, and on the left-hand side the mean with the standard deviation. Clearly, this is not statistically significant. Uh, the patient sample size is clearly too low for this. But interestingly enough, the patient groups that were, in average, about 10 years older and had double high of a lactate level uh, had quite substantial uh, uh, shorter stay on the ICU, had more free days, um, than the uh, medium and uh, the low dose group and the placebo group. So this not being statistically significant, basically a signal that I'm happy to share with you. And the trial, as I mentioned, was not powered to show uh, to, to prove any um, significant difference in a clinically meaningful endpoint. However, we felt that these signals were very encouraging. Now, overall, to summarize this, we had a very positive phase 2A trial. All primary endpoints were met, highly statistically significant C5A inhibition. Um, IFX1 is fully selective, so uh, it did not block the important membrane attack complex that I pointed out earlier. It was safe and well tolerated. The PKPD profile was as expected, and we had no anti-drug antibodies detected. So we were quite happy. We saw some um, efficacy trends, I would call it, in cytokine reduction and on some clinical outcome parameters. So we can say that we have a highly active, uh, biologically active anti-C5A blocking drug. Now I come to um, my second last slide. Uh, and this I, I, I'm showing you also uh, in my capacity of, uh, as a CEO of the company um, and but also as a person who has really developed this from bench to bedside. So despite our enthusiasm about the data, we were not able to attract um, investors 
classical investors, and I've seen many of them on Wall Street and also here in Europe, for um, putting money into additional trials in the sepsis field. And that has to do with the failure rate that uh, Kevin was talking about and Richard Hodgkiss in his talk was talking about, but it has to do also with the amount of money that you put at risk. And I have tried to depict that in this graph. You see the discovery phase of a drug through the lead drug development, preclinical phase one, phase two, phase three, and market. And this is a very, very conservative estimate of myself, what you would have to put in what we as a very small company would have to put into bringing this to the market. And we're talking about 100 to 150 million. And uh, we just completed and published that we were able to attract um, now a nice amount of money, 31 million euros, 35 million US dollars into the company. So now we are well financed, but not to continue um, the sepsis program. So we put them on hold. I personally feel very sad about I would have liked to push it, but um, I clearly got uh, not only from, uh, from investors the signal that this would not find funding, but also from uh, big pharmaceutical companies. So we had to react to it. Um, obviously, we have a very interesting drug, and we're developing in other markets. And you see, just as an example, the orphan drug markets, there you can reach markets with 30 to 50 million um, money at risk. And this is much more attractive for many companies. Um, now, we're still uh, staying on track. So we have one development plan that will look into severe community-acquired pneumonia. So we haven't given it up, and as I mentioned, I put it on hold. But uh, I think this is a critical remark at the end, but I think it's also part of the true story. I think we have here a potentially working drug. We have a good concept. That's my personal opinion. I am conflicted. I mentioned it. But um, the community that invests and puts money at risk for this is not ready to put more money into future development. Now, I think I would like to summarize um, the talk. c inhibition, I think, is interesting. Uh, it's an interesting approach. Um, uh, in patients with early septic organ dysfunction. Um, available funding for later stage clinical development in sepsis appears to me as extremely difficult and challenging. Uh, I haven't talked about that in detail, but I think 28-day mortality is a very difficult primary endpoint. Our control um, arm had, a, had an overall mortality of 12%. Um, that maybe is also explaining the low lactate inclusion levels and others, but uh, I think generally we have a clear tendency of lesser mortality. And um, we also have a non-clear rate of sepsis attributable death rates. So we don't know how many of the patients that are dying in these trials are truly dying of the response, immune response, and uh, how many of them are basically dying because there's an underlying surgical problem, for example, that has not been solved and cannot be solved. So I think... My own perspective is that is not a disease. We need different types of clinical trials in this field. There's a very high medical need, and we need to be creative together to, to make an advantage uh, for patients and to bring something meaningful to, uh, to, to the bedside. And I'm very happy that I heard the talk from um, Professor Pickers here uh, that, that goes exactly into this direction and also celeprestine. So I think there's something interesting to come. And with that, and with a, with a very big thanks to all the people that really helped making this small dream of us come true, that we could at least test this in patients. Michael Bauer, uh, principal investigator, many investigators at the different study sites, 
And my very special thanks at last also to Professor Reinhardt, who has not been only not uh, not only been my mentor, but also very strong supporter that that we push this. Um, Thank you so much for your patience. Um, um, I was very honored and happy that I could present this today, and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you very much. Very nice presentation. We have a few minutes. Let me just ask, um, you did a fabulous job of getting the treatment in in such a short period of time in which, to which you and your team should be congratulated. People still worry it's too short, uh, or excuse me, that, that the, the illness is occurring at such a fast rate that that, uh, you know, even three, three and a half hours is too late, that, you know, the C5A is being generated, it's got a half-life half in a plasma in the 30 seconds. And, and is it worth considering a, as, as a prophylaxis? Could you think about uh, this treatment before organ transplantation or some other planned event where you anticipate a fair amount of complement activation um, and you can get the drug in before the uh, disease begins. Uh, yes, Stephen, thanks. I, I appreciate that question. Um, actually, we are right now running a phase two trial, multi-center uh, trial in Germany in complex cardiac surgery where we can treat fully preventively. So this is a trial where we, in the acute care space, uh, where we feel there's an unmet medical need, where we are... Um, uh, delivering the drug preventively before even the insult starts. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, my whole background and my passion lies in this uh, sepsis field. Um, we have been torturing our minds to find the best way to even be quicker than three and a half hours. But, uh, frankly speaking, uh, having the informed consent procedures that we have to respect um, in, in Germany, and we, we, we conducted this this study with the SEPNET um, trials group, which is a really an experienced trial group in that area, um, this was just the best we could do. And, I mean, they, they did a fabulous job, these people at the study sites, the study nurses. They have really put their hearts into this. And um, to be quicker... Uh, then three and a half hours, you would basically need a waiver for informed consent. Right. And um, and that that um, it, may, it does I think exist in a few a few uh, countries, and it's something we had looked into, but we we chose to, to give it a try with these three and a half hours in an environment that we felt very positive about delivering a very high class clinical trial. Perfect. Thanks very much. A great presentation. We'll move on to our last presentation for this session, which is given by Pierre-Francois Luterre, and he'll be talking about uh, adrenocyst-zumumab um, as a new treatment option for sepsis. So, uh, Dr. Luterre, you're on. <clears throat> yeah, th thanks, Steve. So, um, I'd like here to... Um, show some new developments regarding the use of a new antibody directed against a uh, adrenomodulin that plays apparently a, a major role in, uh, in sepsis. And so adrenomodulin is a vasoactive peptide hormone that uh, plays and acts as a autocrine and paracrine and endocrine um, in, in patient uh, having uh, sepsis or septic shock, 
and plays a role on a worsening or in, enhancing vasodilation, but also modifying the vascular integrity and therefore modifying the vascular permeability. And so uh, this hormone uh, plays a role on the endothelial and uh, smooth mus uh, muscle cells, and it's um, acting via the uh, G-protein coupled receptor, uh, so the CLR and uh, AMP2 and 3, and, and, and uh, so uh, finally via the um, CMP. And so adrenomodulin has been at least tested and, and, and measured in patients developing sebrosepsin uh, septic shock, and this has been done in various countries in a large number of patients developing sepsis, and to see how robust uh, adrenaline levels were um, correlated and associated with the uh, outcome of patient. And so a first study done by um, Salvatore and Daisoma in, in Italy, uh, working in a population uh, of patient um, having a mean age of uh, 78, he enrolled patient within uh, 12 hours of shock uh, after admitted uh, to the emergency room and they were drawing blood and repeat determination and to see how adrenaline was correlated with uh, severity and uh, outcome. And you see this on this uh, figure here, the uh, underlying condition of these patients and the mid age and the Apache 2 score um, determining the uh, severity. And you see that this uh, level, this plasma level of adrenomodulin was rather well correlated with the outcome of patient and non-survivors and its elevated level in in uh, throughout the course of their disease process uh, from baseline to uh, the fourth days, and you see that this was a significant difference um, in the um, mean level, having a um, adrenaline level above 70 uh, micrograms in the patient uh, with a poor outcome. And so this was um, um, in, in the plot curve you see here, where you see that patient having septic shock uh, compared to other cause of uh, death at a significant difference in the adrenaline level. So as if not only adrenaline uh, level were associated with outcome, but of course the goal is to see whether there's a link in between adrenaline uh, severity and outcome, and therefore whether this could be a peptide and a hormone we could act against and to see whether this would modify the outcome. This has been repeated in a German trial run by uh, Gerhard Marx, um, including more than 50 patients. Uh, same scenario, but once again, including here controlled patient, patient with sepsis, severe sepsis in the former definition, and septic shock, and looking at the um, uh, adrenaline level and associated outcome. And as you see here once again on this slide is that um, ADM, so adrenaline, is a good marker for shock and a predictor of mortality in this setting, which was a surgical population. You see that the mean and the median level of adrenaline in the non-survivor was um, well above 100 as opposed to the survivor. And this was, of course, um, compared with other biomarkers, including uh, 
procalcitonin, uh, creatinine clearance, the CRP, uh, and other uh, markers of coagulation abnormality in patient uh, with septic shock. And you see that on this slide, adrenomodulin uh, was uh, nicely um, shown to be a good predictor of outcome in such a setting. Now, <clears throat> a company uh, which is called Svengertech has developed an antibody uh, directed against uh, adrenomodulin, and they work on different um, type of antibody, and uh, one of them uh, showing the best uh, survival in a animal model uh, called the uh, HAM1101, uh, as you see on this slide, showing a um, um, more than double survival compared to um, placebo, but also compared to other uh, type of antibody. And this antibody um, was now selected for immunization and further drug development by the, uh, the company. And as you will see, uh, this antibody uh, uh, on the right part of the panel is a blocking but not fully blocking uh, the um, receptor uh, so that, you know, there is a uh, uh, reduction in, in the uh, AMP response uh, in cells overexpressing uh, the, um, the receptor. So this antibody was selected based on the fact that it was able to block but not fully blocked the production of uh, CAMP. And in a animal model in the so-called mice intensive care units uh, in the lab of Peter Rademacher, uh, they worked on a, a sequel ligation model uh, to see whether a blocking adrenomodulin by this antibody was uh, having any kind of effect on organ dysfunction, on shock severity, and outcome of the mice. And as seen here, you see that in this model, of uh, kind of 10 to 16 weeks uh, mice uh, in this uh, fecal ligation uh, model with uh, resuscitation and antibiotics and even norgrelin to maintain the blood pressure. They compared the uh, use of this antibody to a saline used as control, and the study was ending after uh, 20 hours of follow-up and interestingly, uh, the first observation was that the antibody was reducing the need in noradrenaline. Uh, and so uh, you see that the uh, maintenance of the hemodynamic condition was achieved with the antibody in a far better way than uh, with uh, saline, of course, that uh, the heart rate was lower by the antibody with a significant difference in uh, the uh, blood pressure. Also, interestingly, was that there was an improvement in the kidney dysfunction of these animals, and this was associated with a reduction in the need of uh, fluid loading, and so the fluid balance was significantly different. So this would support the fact that this antibody acting against adrenaline is also reducing the permeability reducing the need of fluids, and at the same time improving the uh, kidney function of these uh, animals. Now, in terms of inflammatory response, in a similar way, the antibody was associated with a reduction in the uh, over-inflammatory response 
as shown here by a significant reduction in the level of IL-6 together with a reduction that was also significant in the level of TNF in these animals. So not only is the drug acting on the um, vascular tone and improving the blood pressure, but seems to be uh, reducing the increased permeability observing sepsis, but at the same time um, having a um, effect on the uh, OS response in terms of inflammation based on these two uh, biomarkers. Now, uh, on top of this, uh, looking at uh, histology of these kidneys, you see that uh, the animals treated with the uh, antibody directed against adenomadine, so the HMA1101, was also um, reducing the extravascular albumin accumulation in the uh, kidney, uh, and this is supported also by the uh, second part of the panel, where you see that uh, VEGF is, um, was reduced compared to um, control animals and also angiopoietin-1. Uh, so definitely uh, this drug uh, and this antibody seems to affect the um, side effect or the, 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 uh, the effect of adenomodulin not only on the vascular tone, but also on the uh, tissue damage induced by sepsis. Now, of course, to summarize this, we can say that adenomodulin seems to play an important role in the pathogenesis of septic shock. This is, of course, based on um, observational studies in real life with patient sepsis. You, you may just uh, wonder whether it's a witness of severity and that as other biomarker, the more severe you are, the more elevated it is. But based on experimental data, acting on this uh, peptide and this hormone using an antibody is modifying the uh, organ dysfunction and modifying also the outcome of animals and the, uh, the tissue damage. So uh, it seems that uh, this rock seems to be promising it in such a setting. And currently, uh, the antibody is under development in terms of um, not only experimental study, but also clinical study, and uh, has been tested now um, in uh, LC volunteers, showing that uh, the antibody is definitely uh, safe, not only in animals, but also uh, in humans. And the plan is now to uh, move forward and on top of the phase 1A uh, trial in healthy volunteers is also to see the tolerability and the effect on systemic inflammation in healthy volunteer challenge with LPS. And within the coming six to eight months, the plan is to develop a phase 2 trial to demonstrate not only safety and tolerability of the antibody directed against adenomodulin, but also uh, to look for a clinical signal uh, most likely uh, to be the change in organ dysfunction and especially uh, the change in hemodynamics and um, respiratory dysfunction together with the uh, kidney dysfunction uh, altogether supporting the fact that the uh, experimental data are supported by uh, clinical uh, data uh, in the in, in in the coming uh, in the coming months and uh, years. 
And I think that uh, this will complete my uh, presentation regarding this uh, promising intervention. Thank you, uh, PF. Uh, that's, that was a great talk and a very unusual and interesting strategy that I think uh, has much to say for it. Just to remind the audience, we're, we're a few minutes late, not bad. I'm about five minutes late. If you want to uh, leave this session and go to the next session, please feel free to do so. Uh, we just want to just ask Dr. Latier a couple questions. And, and first, uh, PF, as I recall, there's a difference of effect whether you have a monoclonal antibody directed against the C-terminus versus the N-terminus of the adrenomedulin molecule. The, the one that's going to uh, clinical trials is the N-terminus uh, monoclonal. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, this has been uh, this is an important question because uh, uh, we, we we may wonder why a uh, similar antibody uh, is acting differently uh, when it's directed against the C-terminal, the N-terminal. So that's why, uh, based on the uh, um, experimental data, uh, the antibody directed against the N-terminal was achieving the, the bigger effect on both hemodynamic and permeability and organ dysfunction. So that's why uh, this is the one that has been finally selected for future development. Okay. As uh, a question, uh, this antibody does not appear to be a blocking antibody, and do you know if it's possible for the antibody to enhance ADM biological activities? Uh, it's it's um, um, modulating, but not completely blocking um, the um, the the host response, right? To the best of our knowledge, for the moment. Excellent. All right, I think that uh, answers all our questions, and really appreciate uh, your presentation. Thanks very much. Very clear, and for all the speakers of this session, which I thought was really superb. So I'll now asked you to move to your next session. Um, thanks very much for everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. On March 17th, we will continue with the last session of the First World Sepsis Congress, titled Sepsis, a Global Health Threat. We hope you tune in again. Oh,